what happens when human cultures like co-evolves with the environments and what happens when cultural identity actually and the sense of belonging is actually strongly connected to the local biodiversity. I've always been fascinated with understanding the way our cities work and what engages and excites us about our shared spaces. But probably the thing that fascinates me the most in the way of urban design is how much these spaces impact our own personal sense of belonging. What is it about a building, park, sidewalk, or pretty much any other fixture in our urban environments that pulls us in or makes us feel excluded? How is it that so many public spaces aren't designed with the people that inhabit them in mind? These are some of the questions that brought me to Lisa Lott-Stenfeld, team director and head of research and development at Gale. Gale is an urban design company that works for cities and communities, helping them to be equitable, healthy, and sustainable places for all inhabitants. Lisa Lott leads many of these projects, focusing on urban strategies, mobility, and data services. She's also responsible for initiating innovative concepts that incorporate citizen centricity and new models of collaboration with the goal of guiding the future of sustainable cities. So it's likely no coincidence that Lisa Lott lives and works at Gal's offices in Copenhagen, a city that according to the Council of Europe wants to be the most inclusive city in Europe. And I have to say from personal experience, spending time in Copenhagen, it's well on its way to achieving this distinction. But of course, no city, even a city that invests as much as Copenhagen does in supporting the well-being of its residents, gets it right all the time. In an increasingly globalized world, our city leaders, planners, and developers are facing a whole new onslaught of complex challenges. And the playbooks of the even recent past aren't working anymore. It's time for a whole new way of thinking about how we make our cities work better for our people. Welcome to Living Untitled. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great. Yes, yes. Well, we're super appreciative. This is going to be a lot of fun. I always like to start our conversations with sort of grounding us around this core topic of community. That's what we're all such a big fan of in terms of, you know, building, figuring out better ways to build in the world today uh, that we live in. And so the first question I like to ask folks is, how do we remind people that community is just worth the investment in the first place? I, I really truly believe that cities are built of social infrastructure and a well-working city is one that is like, socially resilient and where people can afford to live and where they can interact with each other. So I think community is quite the core of a well-working city. And that's why we have to invest in it because without the people and without the social infrastructure that is kind of created by us coming together, we're not going to see a very attractive city. It's not going to be a livable city. It's not going to be a you know, a, a city that invites for a pleasant stay. So I think community is the most important part and people can sense a strong community as soon as they land in the airport. It's it's very important. For me, that's, uh, that's what we should learn to understand better. It's what we should learn to appreciate more and actually involve, like integrate in all projects. The flip side of that, especially in the work that you do, what does it feel like when you maybe step off a plane in a region that you don't feel 
community? What does that feel like, this sort of absence of community that you kind of probably are much more fine-tuned to sense in a way when you walk into these areas of the world? And, and certainly a lot of your responsibility and why you're there in the first place is to help build or you know even rebuild community that may have been lost in that particular city or region? Well, it's a really good and relevant question. And I guess there could be a lot of answers to it. But I think one thing that is important with a well-working city is that you actually can live side by side with people with different income and like different life situations. And I think in cities where it's not designed for that, you can sense a very unwelcoming feeling and you can actually feel more like a foreign person than you ever done before. And I think there is something with feeling welcome and feeling like you are allowed to be a part of the city. I think it's quite where there is something very important for me that, you know, even if you're a tourist, you do want to feel like a local. And, and that's, I think, what we all want to do when we travel. And there are just some cities that are very making you very aware of that you're not a local and you don't speak the language and there are a certain group living here and if you're not a part of that you're very fast outside of that group and then you will not feel welcome wherever you go because everything is just really made for that community so i think there is that feeling of um, I almost remember, you know, growing up and there were always this group of like bullying people. Like there's that kind of like feeling where you're like, when you're not stepping into that welcoming space that you're like, oh, I'm not in that group, yeah. you know? And it's it's interesting when a city can almost like breathe that. Um, ah, yeah. So I think that is that, but it's also something with the accessibility, like all in all, like how accessible is the city? How safe does it feel to walk through it? It's actually... a major part of making you feel like welcome and, and making it easy for you to get around is whether you like need to rent a car to get around or not. Now we sit in Los Angeles. I know it's difficult to get around for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I think luckily Los Angeles still feel very welcome, but there are for sure areas in the city where it's very, very difficult to get around and where it then becomes very closed around itself instead of, open and welcoming for others. Mm, absolutely. I know I was gonna, it, it, while you were kind of offering that definition in a way or that clarity on the topic in a way, I was thinking, I was like, huh, I don't know if you feel that when you walk off a plane in Los Angeles, you probably feel exactly the what we don't want to feel because in a way you're right. Like you can find a home, you can find belonging in a city like Los Angeles, but you it's probably because there are so many different individual pockets that there are more options that you can stumble into and find belonging in that pocket. But I don't think cohesively as a city, there's no connected sort of sense of community in a way in Los I Angeles. There, I think there's a lot of communities. I, I, It's interesting because Los Angeles is a city I've traveled to really many times. I, I actually, I'm very fascinated by the city. And maybe because I am interested in urban planning, Los Angeles become kind of the opposite of what what uh, like a European totally the, or Scandinavian. It's or it's just designed more for cars. Like yes. it's it's really like that, yeah. which is a big part of a lot of cities. It's nothing wrong with it, um, but it's it's um, it's just interesting because 
it also becomes very clear to me that this kind of part of, you know, socially resiliency that, that I really search for in a city. I mean, after the pandemic, I was there and it was like, oh my God, it's so clear how many people that are not included, that are not part of the community. And if you don't have the resources for several reasons, you're just outside. And I think that's kind of a also like maybe building on this kind of societal structure, obviously, and not just the physical structure that, I mean, that's also part of it. How do you make sure there's an infrastructure to to kind of capture people that are in challenging life situations? And how do you make them part of that that place? Because they might have lived there their whole life. Like it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing. And it becomes very clear in a city like Los Angeles or or also I went to my my partner is from Portland, Oregon. So I, I went there after the pandemic and I was like, this has changed. Uh, it's very easy to see that there's something with the infrastructure that is not working. And that's very connected to the social infrastructure. Yes. So. You've also talked about this concept of making what we don't see, the invisible things visible, that is really an integral part, I would say, in a lot of the work that you do that is informing how you're thinking about developing these much stronger, more connected community urban environments here. Can you talk to us just to like a little bit more about what that phrase means? I mean, we, we are kind of in a, in a situation where most people are moving to cities. We're going to be like 70% of the people is going to live in cities. And I think in, in relation to that, talk, talking about sustainability and resiliency, it's so important to understand that the solution is probably not to create another solution or new solutions on how to handle it. It's actually to more create a, a better understanding on what people will need. And I think creating that understanding is actually where we need to kind of reveal the unhidden layers. We need to understand what actually is beneficial in uh, everyday life, in people's everyday life. And I think we need to go like deeper down into what the, like the wishes are and how they can actually improve their everyday life. So it's, it's very much based on this. Uh, to understand it better in order to create invitations that make people act different. And I think it goes kind of back to where we started with this picture from San Diego, that it's, it's interesting when you try to encourage people to behave different, that you don't think about what a perfect stage the public space is. People will move through there, no matter if they're in car or walking or biking or e-scooter or whatever they do. Most people go out from their house and go into public space. So it's a perfect place to, to kind of invite people to change mindset, to do something different, uh, to meet other people. And I think this kind of idea with making the right choice, the easy choice, I think is something that goes through all work at Gale. That, you know, we, people don't change behavior just because you ask them to. They won't like <laughs> become more sustainable just because you say, you know what, it would be good if you recycle these things. Like it's, it's like, you know, if it doesn't fit into your everyday life with kids and with families and w whatever you have, busy works, it's not going to happen. So I think, again, going back to the more we understand how people feel they belong, how they're included, 
what a community is, because I'm not sure it's just the physical place you live. It might be a workplace. And like the more we understand how they move through the city, how they wish to like sit and be in a park, like the more we understand all of this, we can actually create invitations that then will encourage people to act in a more sustainable way. What are some of the ways in which, you know, we can better address some of these challenges? What are some of the ways that you and your team at Gell are really addressing these challenges? How do we make these cities, uh, design them in a way that better invites people, as you mentioned, this sort of invitation design that you're doing here, you know, establish or new that are in these environments, these places to choose the right things to make these spaces work better for everyone recognizing there's so many of these factors at play that's a that's a really good question and it's actually something we are looking very much into i mean gail are known for creating cities for people but what we really try to focus in is actually creating cities for people and planets and places like it's it's very very important and i think if uh ecosystem is if the nature is healthy we will be happier too and i think understanding ourselves as part of that ecosystem is super important especially for urban planners to be honest and understanding like how you can actually work with biodiversity and how you can actually create space for this and i think so so as you probably already know we are working very data-based and we're very interested in like how things are actually connected in general and one of the things we're looking into is very much like you know not only cultural diversity but biological diversity, which of course refers to all living organisms. And I think if more cities, more companies, more stakeholders would focus on what happens when human cultures like co-evolves with the environments and what happens when cultural identity actually and the sense of belonging is actually strongly connected to the local biodiversity. So like understanding like that the surrounding land and plants and everything and food food cultures and how we grow things and how we produce things and how we consume things, like understanding that all of this is an ecosystem that we need to take care of. And I think there's going to be like a big focus on more tactical landscape architecture, ta tactical um, regional uh, landscaping, where we actually need to understand that production need to be closer to the cities so the consumption can actually be closer to where the production is and i think we have to work much more with this connection in all different cities and doing that in different climate understanding that you know i don't know if you've been in scandinavia in the winter time but it's not like super great it's like <laughs> coming coming to sweden in in november is not awesome it's like it's cold <laughs> so you know you have to like you have to understand like what is what is local production here yeah. compared to i mean Going to Los Angeles, I'm always like super jealous about the whole West Coast. Like, oh, the perfect avocado and the, like everything is just great. So, you know, <laughs> we have some different conditions. And, um, but it doesn't change that we have to understand this and we have to understand that shame. But most of all, that this kind of biological diversity is something that I don't hear that many mention when coming to urban planning, because that also goes to like, multi-species like we're not the only species we 
how do I make insects thrive so they can like help us get the ecosystem going? And how do we actually understand how we invite them to thrive? Um, you know, my colleagues just talked about this project where they have been looking into how there are a lot of birds that are actually not like surviving or actually not like thriving in the cities and surviving because of noise in cities. They can't survive because they can't like find a frequency that makes them able to connect with other birds and mate, which is kind of like, it's such a sad story and it's like human made problem. It's us who created it. So I think we need to understand like, without getting too like, um, too like into all of these details, I think we do need to understand connections, how we are connected in order to make it easier to actually do the right thing and in order to actually give tools for people to to be more nature-based or more and more um, yeah helping with the biodiversity yeah yeah how are you identifying like what's the right information to to pay attention to the most maybe to af- inform a lot of the decisions that you're making so i think place matters here i think it really matters where you're at as i said like what climate what city what size of the city what culture and what history do you have? Because I think um, one thing that it has been overseen in, in some urban planning projects is the culture part. It has almost become so globalized that it's like, it could be ev- anywhere. You can see a picture and you're like, why is this building here? Like, it, honestly, there's like this lack of connection to the culture and the place. And I think if, and, and I think if you start by actually really respecting the place and un- finding the good stories from a place, there's always good stories. There's always something really, really relevant and beautiful in a city. That That's, I mean, I might eat up that comment some other time, but I do feel <laughs> that I do feel like there there is something beautiful in everything in different yeah. scales. And I think the best thing, like, urban designer, urban developer, or a stakeholder or a city could do is to find that cultural identity that is strong. And when you do that, I think it's much easier to understand what data you need to look at because you can actually see that, okay, if it's only like 5% that is the positive story, then what is the problem with the city? And I think then for us, it's very, very relevant to start by looking at life and then building and then like, you know, it, it really has to start with understanding the life and the interaction and the communities as we talked about. So I do think like for us, it's been very different. Like if we worked, like some of the examples I had at the conference, for example, was from Times Square in New York, where we worked on like optimizing uh, traffic flow. That was kind of the assignment we had from the start, from, from the transport department. And then when we started to study how how the flow was, we could see that like 90% of the physical space was made for cars. It was designed for cars and 10% were for people. But in real life, it was the opposite. 90% of the flow was people walking. So they were like squeezed together, which of course resulted in, you know, very uncomfortable situations, um, you know, people like kind of getting into accidents people not stopping up, very unfriendly and like a bit irritated mood. And, you know, when we actually got through that, we could close off Times Square and do a temporary activation there and try to see if people would stop and interact. 
we could see on the data just during that time, like sale going up in the stores, people stopping to interact, like enormous amounts more than before. And even better, people living in the area, because there are people living in the area, <laughs> they, they actually felt connected. They yes. wanted to go there, which is, again, a great feeling of a good neighborhood that, you know, people want to be there. And sometimes I feel we also miss or forget that, you know, people live in the area. It's not uh, many of these landmark places. You kind of forget that there are there is a local community there, too. So, for example, with that, it's it's a very like, so it started with this kind of optimizing traffic flow, ended with being a suggestion to a new plaza. And, you know, after that, even like creating a framework, what they have used on like 70 different plazas in Manhattan now, for example, with the same structure, which is to us like true success that they have used many of our things together with other people's suggestion to actually create something just fantastic. Uh, so I think that's kind of one situation where at the same time, another like uh, example I had with the conference was from Stanford, Stanford University. Like, how do you actually understand when opening up the school more and asking the question, who could the school before if we actually open, if we actually invite people in from the neighborhood, not only students and staff or faculty members, like actually open. And I think then we looked very much more into like, what do people react to? We had this photo voice, people took photos, they send it to us, and they actually annotated them and said, like, gave us a lot of input that was super qualitative, super subjective, but all referring to like belonging or like underlining what for them was positive and negative from Stanford. And we had like takeaways like um, that you know, the monu monumental architecture from some made them feel really unwelcome. It was like, oh, that's for one group of people. We don't want to go there because of the architecture. Then they were also like, uh, you know, every time there were pictures where there were no people, people were annotate that they felt unwelcome, for example. So, you know, places where people are, people feel more welcome. And we could also see that nature was great, but as soon as it was manicured and like more artificial nature, they just didn't, they weren't interested. It was the wild nature. So these kind of data kind of gives us a whole other sense of what people actually like to see and not see. Um, so I think, you know, it really depends on where we work. And I, of course, have this suggestion to say that it's, it's very, very different what kind of methods we use, what kind of starting point it is, and who is our client too. And who we collaborate with. Absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting. You know, I love that you brought up the Times Square example in New York. I I lived in New York during that entire time, and so I I as a resident of the city saw that transformation in real time. And I remember kind of reading about it. It was so funny when you would like sort of hear the the story on New York One, the local you know media there in the city of. This little pilot plaza project disrupting Times Square, and, uh, Times Square, and some of the language wasn't always positive around it, as I'm sure you dealt with throughout this process. There was a lot of, you know, I bring up that point though because there, it's you've you encouraged the city to make a pretty remarkably large investment in entirely transforming. One of the busiest places, certainly in America, if not, you know, one of still the top in the world, busiest, like most dense 
areas that truly was kind of a disruption of that community in a way, and of course, a disruption that was very positive in the out and outcome. And so I guess the question I kind of have on that is like, how how do you present an argument for an undertaking like that in a way that secures the alignment of so many different groups and stakeholders that are involved in making this type of decision? Like, how do you ultimately convince them that it's worth this pretty massive investment and undertaking? Yeah, that's obviously a good question because, <laughs> I mean, it's it's never like we, we come like, you know, from day to day and saying like let's let's just shut it down totally. like you know it's it's not it's not uh, yeah, luckily <laughs> exactly <laughs> well luckily that's not the situation so yeah i would say i think through through massive research like through actually being very database we often can see you know the challenges that it's really hard to argue against sometimes you know the 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 fact that there were like a lot of spaces available for rent, they couldn't rent them out because there were no one that could actually have a real business on one of the most busy spaces in New York. It was not easy to have a like a business there because people didn't stop. People just move. It was a transit zone that combined with like the fact that there were actually a lot of accidents. When you looked at the data, there were really many traffic accidents because there was not room enough to walk. Uh, and they were not like easy to get over this really big road. And, and, you know, I think all of these data, when you start to hold them together, I think that's kind of where our, where we actually get some like true data-based value in our research, where it's like, it's really difficult to argue against often. You can always say, and I also in this case, like, should we do other investigations? Should we do more? And I would probably say, yeah, it's, it's a good idea. But I do think it's like when working with these kind of temporary activations or interventions, the whole point is that you actually test, test, measure and refine. It's really important that it's not like a permanent, like this is how it's going to be. Because recent, you also just mentioned like, yes, there will always, always be someone that is not positive to a change. And that's <laughs> that's a fact. That yes. like, there's always going to be someone that is like, I liked it better before and why are we doing this? And I always drive this way to work. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sensitive because we are kind of bumping into something that has to do with people's everyday life. And you, if you start to mess with my drive to the school with my kids and then to work and I lose five minutes, <laughs> you will bump into some challenges. Totally. And that is that is super important to understand and it's super important to take serious because that is a person's life. Um, so I think that's also, you know, learning from that is super important, but it's also important to see all the positive feedback. And that happened in New York. That happened at Times Square that there were really many people that gave super good feedback that made it possible for the city to say, well, let's keep much of the road closed. Uh, and I think that's kind of the best thing we can do as a company too, to, to advise and then let the city uh, decide what makes most sense and is most beneficial for the citizens, because that's important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I kind of want to take a step back further in this one, because a lot of what you're talking about, and you mentioned this in how you're using the data, how you're using the insights here is, 
you know, finding the real sort of value in this, the real sort of value proposition in a lot of this, that in a way in my mind needs to start with you kind of have to have the benchmark that you're building off of, right? That it's like understanding the value of the place in the first place. You know, that 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 is real estate. That's a physical environment that you're going to impact. And so we have to first start by understanding just what makes that valuable to begin with, therefore then understand why it's important for us to continue to invest in improving that space. How are how do you sort of approach that part of the model here in terms of the work that you're doing with a lot of these cities? So we we will we will always start a project by doing a health check or doing a baseline study. It's it's super important to do this both to understand what the challenges are, like I talked a bit before about, but also to to make sure that we have something to measure from or to well measure from to understand impact because impact is the most part uh, important part. So I think uh, I think you're totally right. It's so important with the baseline, and I do think without that, it's really difficult to to you know say something about that place um, later. I mean, when that's being said, I think we also have some methods that are, for example, twelve quality criteria that Jan Gale built already. So the co-founder of Gale, he he made his first PhD in 1971, and all, our whole company builds on his methods that has been tried out in the whole world uh, many times since 71. And one thing he de- developed and we have then continued to develop in Gale is these 12 quality criteria, which is a way to actually go out and validate whether a public space or a space is like a good place or not. And then based on these 12 quality criteria. So in other words, you can actually go out and do like a so-called health check or so-called like just trying to see like what's working and not. And this is, has actually worked incredible many times to kind of give a rate one to five. Is this a good place where there's not many, much wind? Is it a lot of light coming in? Do you like, can you talk to each other? Is it noisy? Is it, you know, is the bottom floor actually activated? Is it not? Like all of these things, our research through so many years have showed matters. So in other words, we can do that and then go back to cities or to whoever the property owners or developers and say, you know what, it's not working very well with having like closed bottom floor. It's not inviting. Or we can say, you know, it's really windy here. You should do something. So, so in that way, I think, uh, I, I think we can do that kind of checks without having baseline and following up. Just to say that there are those different ways of studying public space. But for sure, to be able to evaluate impact, you do need a baseline study. You know, I'm curious, and, and maybe this isn't even a, a, a fair question to ask you, because I, I don't know if how many of these how many of these types of projects uh, you as a company would really be interested in taking on or, or just have taken on in the past. You know, I, I recently spoke with someone on uh, on the podcast who is an um, architectural historian really focused on preservation in a way. And I really liked his outlook because it wasn't so much that it's like we have to think about preservation 
as like it can't change. <laughs> you know, this is the this has to forever stay the same because that's that's just unrealistic, right? Like as we look at the world that we live in today, things obviously are changing anyway, given you know the the environmental changes on them, social changes, uh, so on and so forth. You know, but there's also these instances that yeah, and I think we're running into this more and more and more in the world in many cities and many environments today that it's like we have these spaces that we are trying to preserve as much as possible, their integrity of them, but still building so much around them or still having some impact on them in some way or another, but still not lose what's so culturally significant or relevant or you know historically significant in one way or another that's so connected to you know, our identity just as humanity at large in the world. And so balancing that as another piece in this, you know, there's there's a part of me that when I ask a question about value in the way that, you know, we just talked about, you know, how are, how do you deal with a space? And again, I don't know if you do, but how do you deal with a space that there's almost like this intangible value that's sort of like, or or maybe not even intangible, but like absolute value to it, that it's like they're even even any impact on this space has to be so, you're just so careful about what that impact is in the first place. And maybe that's in the middle of one of these cities that you're kind of working on as a project. I don't know, but I'm, I'm so curious if you kind of have a, a, a thought on that. So I, I, I do, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, I, um, it. Good. Good. <laughs> um, I do. And I think there, there's like two, two sides of this because I think, so cultural heritage is super, super important. I mean, we, we come from Copenhagen being a really, really old city. Like it's older than all U.S. together. <laughs> totally. No, no, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just to say it's, it's really having a lot of like history. And I think to us at Gale, like cultural heritage is about the meeting between historic elements and cultural identities. And I do think that the interplay between form and life is kind of, what we're trying to almost preach about. It's like understanding the relationship between form and life is actually kind of the key to actually be more focused on how to prioritize when coming to preservation. Because I do think that, I mean, I, I'm totally into like heritage in general and really like keeping our old building and like keeping our old like yeah, cultural identity and historic, very relevant sites. But I do think that if there's no room for the life or if the, the elements in itself is actually preventing life in a very unlucky way, I do think it's important to have this in a consideration when coming to reservation and not only looking at the condition of the building or looking at the uh, relevance of that building. I also think like, so the second part is like, I do think it's very important in this discussion about circularity to talk about this, because I do think going back to what is a resilient city, I think is a social resilient city that is actually more making use of existing elements. So how can you actually look at, at elements and buildings and properties and and look at preservation in a way where you keep the most important part, but then start to think about how you can reuse it, how you can repurpose it, and how you can actually think about this in like the city centers. I mean, in, in Europe, many city centers are dying because there are coming shopping malls outside. This has already happened in many American cities. 
And I do think in all of this, preservation is really important. And I do think it's important to think about how all of these elements existing can be reused and repurposed for cultural events or for for other cultural meeting places than maybe commercial use. So I think like repurposing things and thinking about it in that way, I think is very interesting. Uh, and I think that was maybe a more general answer to, to your question because we, we do have projects that really looks at this. And we've also been working on, like we had many years in Christchurch that actually had a lot of earthquakes. And how do you actually work with preserving the best possible part of the culture identity and at the same time add new things and kind of modernize the city and i think this is kind of where you start to shape the meaning between form and life i want to go back to uh, really where we started at the beginning of this conversation in a lot of ways which was that topic of belonging how are you taking a lot of that work that you're you you've done to kind of study belonging with these specific projects and communities and now using that to guide and inform and encourage maybe to use your word um invite <laughs> others in these communities going back to that again to play a very active role in shaping um, whatever form these urban environments will take for the future or how to continue to kind of move them forward in the right way so I, I do think that working with belonging and working with understanding what in inclusion means mean also to create a platform where feel, people feel welcome and included to have a voice. So I think the biggest part, like a, a very big learning from, for example, a project like the one you're referring to, Urban Belonging or Stanford or other projects where we have worked very much on understanding communities. We, we have several of these kind of projects over the years. I think the biggest takeaway is that it's so important to give voice to the people that doesn't really necessarily feel like they are the one that should have a voice in this. And it's also the most tricky part because how do you do this? Like, how do you, how do you get people to, to um, be a part of some, some, sometimes quite boring discussions and sometimes <laughs> yeah. to be honest also you know if you're nine when a when a urban planning project starts you're maybe 18 when it's done like how do you capture the voice of young people in this and i do think like the kind of um what, what we have had the success with is actually to go out and involve people in kind of hands-on experiences and like being a part of workshops out like close to their community, trying to invite them like on the way home or like, you know, on their way somewhere and like not be too heavy on what we're expecting from them. And I think with the, with the Urban Belonging Project too, I mean, what, what my colleagues did was actually to go out and contact like communities contact people that are communities that represent minority groups and then we had like min minority groups that were like self-defined there were people that were deaf there were people with function variation there were like lgbt plus uh, there were homeless people there were people that came through because we actually reached out to the ambassadors that then had Met, had a lot of meetings with us and gained trust. So I think trust, trust and transparency are two words that we all need to to learn and use more and and be serious about. Because what I think we actually gained from this and having a lot of dialogue 
spending a lot of time making sure that you know the the ambassadors knew that you know we we really mean this we want their voice and we want you to help us be the spokesperson to the community the more we got closer to that the more we actually had people join from the communities because they they actually felt like someone had made the effort to go that far so I, I i do think it's it's not just about thinking you can send something out and get an answer tomorrow it's actually about giving space inviting showing trust being transparent what the data is used for it's very important like what is it exactly going to be used for when is it going to be used um you know as scandinavians i think we have you know denmark is actually one of the countries with the highest trust in the world the highest social trust to governance to hospitals to police like we feel so safe uh, with, with with different institutions here and that's of course also because we we do spend a lot of our taxes goes to like yeah, beneficial so you, purpose it's, for everyone it's the contribution you're making too and i'm glad you mentioned that cuz like that's a pretty big part of this and but you 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 kind of were talking about that the whole way through as you're saying this that it's like there's transparency in terms of what you are contributing into there and so you recognize that it's a significant you know for folks that don't know this that are probably listening it's like a lot of a great percentage of your your own personal income go is taxed and goes it's back about half. to it's, it's more than half. Yeah, actually. exactly, yeah. and it's going back to all of these public resources that are benefiting everyone. The sort of welfare model in in Denmark is pretty remarkable and rather robust in terms of what that does to support everyone in this community. And so that contribution piece is a, a massive part of you recognizing, you know, your own individual. Um, responsibility in this, but you're right. There's so much trust then that has to come alongside that, and so you've you you have done as a, a nation a pretty remarkable job in terms of consistently um, cultivating trust, maintaining that level of trust there. Yeah, and I think that's also what we can feel being a company from Denmark and being a company from this trust is that we have also learned. I mean, we we are a company that works very global uh, but we we do take this with us we do take with like what is the learnings from coming from a system with a lot of trust what can we actually take with us and how can we actually use this kind of transparency we experience there is there is like it's very rarely that i'm in doubt what what different things are being used for because there has to be transparency because i'm investing in it you know there's like something in that and i think that kind of commitment that comes with it and that kind of yeah i i think it's it's a it's a very very big part of why i think the scandinavian system is actually working in this way that that it actually has a lot of side effects that is really uh, remarkable in that way um so it's i mean we're down to like again my partner is from the us and like he has been looking into like residence permit and things and I'm like, just send it off and you'll get answer. And he's like, I don't trust. What, why would I? Like, you know, he, he, I can sense mindset. he has this yes. kind of like, they're not going to care. Like, <laughs> they do care. You, you're like, <laughs> so it's kind of uh, interesting. It's on all different everyday things. And I, I think it's kind of interesting. But it's, of course, also reminding us that we should never take it for granted. And, you know, that we, yeah, we, we do want to share what the good takeaways are. But we're also trying to not be like, naive about how it is other places absolutely 
And I think this trust factor is like key to actually do this better and get out to community and be honest and, and very, very serious about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to kind of like wrap up the conversation because it's such a, it's the right thing to land on in my mind because it is the most, like out of everything we've talked about, it's like, that's the most critical piece of all of this. You can accomplish so many more things when we have trust, when we have transparency built into the system uh, at the very start and continue to remain the, uh, preserve the integrity in that moving forward. Lisa, this was so much fun. Thank you yeah, so much this for great. this conversation. And again, I appreciate you jumping in late at night and <laughs> chatting that, with this me. This was so great. I mean, I, I could talk for hours about this, obviously. So I, I thank you. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.